contractors have only a couple more weeks to comment on a so-called climate risk rule. If it becomes final, the rule would impose big reporting and operational costs. This as the Pentagon and the industry are trying to figure out how to deal with inflation-related upswings in costs. Here to help sort it all out, Haynes and Boone procurement attorney Zach Prince. And Zach, let's get into this issue of this climate rule This is for everybody, and it's not just necessarily reporting, but also you might have to do things differently. Tell us about it. That's right, Tom. So there are two categories of contractor that this rule would apply to. There are significant contractors and major contractors. It's challenging to define exactly what either of these two are because the rule is not very well written. A significant contractor is a contractor that's received $7.5 million to $50 million in federal contract obligations in the prior federal fiscal year. I'm not sure what a federal contract obligation is. It's not a well-defined term. So whether that means that a contractor has actually received payment of those amounts, or it means the contractor has received contract awards that are valued up to those thresholds, like it would be for the cost accounting standards or similar FAR rules, it's totally unknown. All right. So we don't know precisely who it would affect at the two levels, but what would it do once that's figured out? (laughs) So once that's figured out, on an annual basis, significant contractors, that is the ones that receive $7.5 to $50 million the prior year in whatever that means, uh, they would have to report their scope one and scope two greenhouse gas emissions. It's going to be challenging for them to figure out exactly what that entails, but it's something that they'll have to get a handle of fairly quickly. Yes, because I keep asking this question, if you are a services contractor and you are providing our labor-based types of contracts, what are you doing? People driving to work? Is that what it is? Or maybe the boss had too many beans for lunch? I mean, what do they mean by these emissions in that context? It's not like you're pouring steel and delivering it by diesel truck to a train. So it, it seems that the rule applies to manufacturers, not to service contractors. But that's one of the points that the FAR Council needs to clarify, and it's next step before there's any final rule. And what about those that are neither service contractors nor manufacturers? Suppose you are a reseller and there is some delivery component and you represent manufacturers. That's how a lot of product gets into the government. What about those people? We have to wait and see. We have to wait and see. These are some of the many questions that the comments should be raising with the agency. And with respect to those different levels of reporting of CO2 and emissions, I mean, what do those entail, say, if you are a manufacturer? What do we know about what it is you're going to have to do? Scope 1 and 2 looks at your own emissions. Scope 3 is a much more challenging issue to get a handle on. And scope three reporting is going to be applicable to major contractors, that is, entities with 50 million or more. And that requires going into your supply chain and figuring out emissions that are as a consequence of your activities. And that begs the question of how do you get that information from your supply chain? Are you going to have to flow down clauses? How are you going to have to flow those down? How do the subs figure out how they're allocating greenhouse gas emissions to a particular purchaser? None of these are easy to answer. Or how do you know what they are from any source at all in the first place? That's right. And what about any consequential actions? All right, suppose you are able to figure out, well, this contract and this deliverable is emitting 6.2 tons of CO2 per quarter. So what? If you're a major contractor, that means you have to establish targets for reductions that align with the Paris Agreement. I see. So you can't say, well, next month it's going to be seven tons. It's got to go down. 
Well, you have to establish the target, but the rule isn't clear about what happens if you don't start meeting those targets. At this point, then, what should, in your opinion, contractors be doing, just following step by step what's going on and probably, I would say, comment? That's exactly right. And I'd say get involved with an organization that's going to be submitting comments. National Defense Industrial Association and Professional Services Council, for example, and others. And the ABA is going to be submitting comments. Pretty much every major organization that's involved in this area is going to submit comments because this is really critical. And if you go through the associations, they'll take all the swear words out and and keep you honest there. We're speaking with Zach Prince. He's a partner at the law firm Haynes & Boone. And another matter I wanted to ask you about is this unclear issue, Section 822 of the most recent National Defense Authorization Bill for 2023 and the idea of compensating contractors for inflation-induced rises in cost. There's some question as to how widespread that will be and what kinds of contracts it applies to. That's right. And inflation relief is something that we've talked about a few times already in the past year. It's on everybody's mind who's in this space. You know, Historic levels of inflation, they seem to be coming down a bit. But if you're operating under a fixed-price contract where the pricing was established years ago, you didn't build in contingency for completely ahistorical inflation pressures. Last year, DOD came out with two memos. One said, you're out of luck if you want to get any relief. There's no basis for it. The second one said, actually, maybe there's some relief that can be granted in exchange for some quid pro quo. It wasn't clear what that entailed. Or contractors could always apply for extraordinary contract relief under Public Law 84805. But that is really rarely granted. So in response, Congress heard the complaints of industry. They added the Section 822 to the National Defense Authorization Act last year that would allow DOD discretion to grant contractors and subcontractors under fixed-price contracts some relief to the extent that inflationary pressures increase their costs beyond the price. But it's dependent on a couple factors. One, it's totally discretionary. Two, the NDAA is not an appropriations bill. So it expressly says this depends on there being appropriated funding available for use by DOD, and it has a time period. It only runs through the end of next year, and it can't be implemented until DOD puts out guidance, which they have to do within 90 days. Right. This raises a lot of questions surrounding DOD. One, is there money for that? Just As a parallel question in a different domain, the replacement munitions and systems for delivery from the extraction of our stockpiles that have gone to Ukraine. Nobody knows where that money is coming from or whether they'll replenish and so forth. So really, the increase in the budget for DOD in the coming year, it hasn't really sifted out to where that money is precisely going to go. It's an unfortunate problem, and it's a disconnect that often happens in this space where You have authorization on the one hand for laudable policy goals, but it doesn't come with money. And you can't commit the government to anything without available appropriations. It's actually a crime by the agency person who does it. And I guess it's fair to say then here, too, that if you're a contractor, if you're worried about this, the least you should be documenting your costs and cost increases that seem inflationary so you're prepared for what might come down the pike. Get ready because the money for this is going to be limited and the time is limited. So you want to be engaging with your customer early to try to make sure you can be one of the lucky few 
who actually get relief under the statute. I guess if you're the person who supplies the omelet breakfasts in the Pentagon and what we've seen with the cost of eggs, you've probably got a pretty good case for a price escalator, given what a dozen eggs cost nowadays. <laughs> That's right. Zach Prince is a partner at the law firm Haynes & Boone. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive podcast edition wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Sean Ferguson, Senior Vice President of Government Relations and Chief of Staff to the Office of the Chairman at the Special Olympics, joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss the importance of leadership, inclusion, and community building. To learn more about how you can get involved with the Special Olympics in your community, visit specialolympics.org slash get dash involved. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. What are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned working with that community? Oh, uh, yeah, almost, uh, Shane, it's almost immeasurable. The things I've learned since I've been with Special Olympics, I, um, one of the things that drew me to Special Olympics uh, when I made the move over from from the NFL uh, was that my mother, my grandmother, my aunt all took care of of people with intellectual disabilities and and, and physical disabilities as well. So all of my life, I was uh, interacting and around um, usually usually young people, but also adults with disabilities. And so I, I knew that I knew that work a bit, you know, they they basically were in direct care. And, and I will say and on, a, obviously we'll say about my my family, my mother, my aunt, my grandmother, they're saints. Uh, but uh, the, the men and women that do take care of people with uh, profound disabilities are, are really, um, you know, we, we can't do enough to salute them. Um, they are they're really heroes. And um, so I was I was drawn when I, I and I just saw that, you know, Special Olympics was looking for someone. And I thought, well, you know, take a look at it and see, see you know, throw, uh, send in my information. And lo and behold, I, I, I get hired and um, I learn uh, every day almost something from especially from our athletes. Uh, we're blessed to have a number of athletes that work here in our office in Washington, D.C., and, you know, uh, Terrell, who, who works in, in our mailroom and comes by with packages and deliveries, uh, if you're having a day that's, you know, getting away from you and you, you <laughs> coffee hasn't kicked in, but Terrell comes by, always happy, always enthused, uh, has, a, has a good story. Like, it can just turn a day around for you. And, and, and you think of, I, I, you know, often when you'll walk away, I'll be like, you know, whatever was bothering me or whatever is you know, stressing me out and come on, you know, like, look at, look at Terrell, like he, he, he faces everything with optimism. And, and, and I've seen that also in our going to competitions in throughout the United States and globally, you see people who have had everything stacked against them. You know, their parents, when they were born, were often told this is a tragedy and you should, you should, you know, send your, this child away. Don't, don't, you know, and, and kind of forget about them, Get, turn them over to the stage or, or wherever. And, and, you know, that, you know, just kind of watch, watch your hands a bit. Um, and, and, and in, in these cases, the parents didn't do that, thankfully. Um, and, but they've still faced enormous challenges, you know, and, but you see them out competing on the basketball courts or the football fields or swimming and, uh, and, and, you know, besting their times from from their last competition, and they're so committed and just keep fighting through 
all the obstacles that they've had in front of them that are not just on the sports field, but also in growing up and finding education and finding groups to be part of and trying to find jobs. And, and, and I've seen so much perseverance and grit uh, from a- the athletes of Special Olympics that uh, I, I, Tim Triver, my boss, the chairman, uh, says all the time, and I couldn't agree with him more, uh, we get more than we give. Uh, working with Special Olympics, it, you know, we, and thank you for your very kind words about the work I do and we do, but but we're the lucky ones. We, those of us that work here are the lucky ones because I I said to someone the other day, you know, the things that I've been able to see and experience with athletes, you just don't get to do that anywhere. That that you know, it's a, and it's so unique and it's so uh, joyful and and I mean, we work hard and, you know, we, we're up against, you know, the things that nonprofits are up against and, you know, the, you know, the issues of the day, but uh, man, you see it, it and, and, and the inclusion and the, at Special Olympics, no one's excluded, you know, no, right. no one's excluded. Yeah. Everyone is equal at Special Olympics it, and, you know, in a country that's quite divided on so many lines, politically and uh, socially, uh, economically, race and, uh, sexual orientation and whatnot, but you go to Special Olympics and everyone's involved, everyone's welcome, everyone's equal. And I've learned that it's a model for our country and for our world. Uh, I, I just think that that if if people were involved in Special Olympics and experienced the power of Special Olympics for themselves, I, I, I can't imagine that one help our country and help our world um, to experience that true inclusion and acceptance of difference. How, how do we get how can listeners get involved in Special Olympics? Ways to get involved? Uh, tons of ways. So uh, volunteers, obviously, coaches, officials. Uh, and, and the thing that, that, that uh, Tim Shriver has done uh, and really pushed in the years that he's been chairman is the unified sports model that, that I mentioned earlier. Um, where people, and, and it doesn't have to be, uh, it's not just school age, it's, it's uh, you know, we say nine to 99 or uh, year old uh, folks uh, that play on teams, uh, bowl together, golf together, play soccer, basketball together, uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities competing on teams together. Um, and that is, I, I think when you, when you go back to the founding uh, of our organization what mrs Tri- mrs shriver was trying to do uh was to to uh, create inclusion opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities and you see it at these unified sports events where people with and without are playing together we still have traditional uh teams where it's all people with intellectual disabilities competing with other uh teams all intellectual disabilities but this model of inclusive sports and inclusive leadership programs and whatnot i think is truly revolutionizing and changing the way people see uh others with intellectual disabilities that's just like i mean that's what we that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to bring people together and bridge difference and, and, and celebrate differences and that our athletes, man, are some of the grittiest people that you will meet. And, and, uh, and there's a lot to learn from our athletes and playing sports with them and interacting is, is how you'll learn it. Check us out at, you know, uh, specialolympics.org on, on our website, uh, that will link you to your local program. You can follow through the, the clicks of how to get involved and where, what's closest to you. You'll enjoy it. I can promise you that.
Well, thank you very much, Sean. And, and to everybody listening, I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and we'll uh, talk to you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.